the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our two of our daily three-hour tour. Delight to welcome back to the show our friend David Harsanyi. He is a senior writer for National Review and author of a brand new book, Euro Trash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. Uh, but first, um, I thought of David uh, when I learned of PGO Works passing uh, for two reasons. One is he was maybe the first person to put up a tribute to him on uh, any media, and he did so at National Review in a post RIP PJ O'Rourke. And the other is if you go through David's uh, new book, Son of a Gun, the very first chapter, Europeanization, starts with a uh, uh, an epigraph. I think that's the right word for it by PJ O'Rourke. David, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about P.G. O'Rourke. You feel free to reprise what you wrote over at National Review about him and what his uh, death meant to you. What did you think when you heard about it, what his life meant to you? Well, I was greatly saddened because he's a he's a personal hero of mine. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I turned 52 this year, and for me and my, I think, people of my generation, uh, he— he is perhaps our Mencken. You know, he's our, our greatest writer, just incredibly funny, um, not always writing about politics, but quite often a great journalist who traveled the world and reported from all sorts of places. Uh, he began his career with National Lampoon, and uh, then he went to Rolling Stone, um, and obviously wrote all over the place. His books are amazing. Parliament of Horrors, I think, is, is perhaps the best book about American politics ever written. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, from a reporter, I don't mean as an ideological sense. Right, right, um, right, right, right. Real, really gets, gets it. It was written in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, so obviously I'm, I'm saddened by his passing, and, and uh, I've quoted him so many times. And he's, you know, he's been an incredible inspiration for me, and I know many others, uh, you know, around my age. Interestingly, just a little compare and contrast, if, if it's reasonable to do so. You think about writers that people our age look to. You and I are around the same age, and um, and they are passing. I, I kind of th- – and, and, and you know that they're good when you try and emulate them. I think you joked to him once, if I, if I remember what you wrote earlier today. You may have joked to him once. How did, how did you put it? You, you, you've never met someone well, in person whose ideas you stole more from or something like that. How did you put it? Well, I got to meet him, and uh, I didn't know what, how to open the conversation. So I said, you know, I kept calling him PJ, you yeah. know, like I knew him. And uh, I just said, you know, I feel like I know you because I've been ripping you off all these oh, years. That's, and that's <laughs> something he would probably have appreciated. But yeah. he laughed. Yeah. yeah, he laughed. I mean, uh, he was he was really nice. I didn't. No, I've got to meet, I've gotten to meet some of my heroes, and I'm happy about that. You know, lucky enough to have interviewed a lot of people who I think are, you know, important, right, in 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 our culture and civilization, basically. And uh, I'm not saying that he changed the world in some big way. I doubt he'd want to hear that anyway. But uh, he certainly was someone who affected the lives of many people. I think through his writing and. And you know, as a writer, you can't really hope hope for more than that. And uh, I, I aspire to be even, you know, close to anything 
you know, close to kind of the, the level of writing that PJ achieved uh, so consistently. And that's the thing when you write often, you know, and I write, you know, five to eight pieces, things a, a week, you know, yeah. it's, it's difficult to reach that level. Yeah. Uh, and he, he consistently did it uh, for, you know, decade after decade. So I think that, uh, you know, he's a, he's a person that I, I look to. I, I don't recall if you put this in your piece, but I have to tell you, I've seen it in several posts on Twitter throughout the day, versions of this, that generally it's not a good idea to meet your heroes in person. But that wasn't true of P.J. O'Rourke. He was in person what he was in public or in writing. And uh, and, and and that's a pretty rare thing um, and, and a nice thing to say about someone. You know, there's a lot of I'm sure you and I have had similar type of, of professional lives in certain respects, David. I, I, I don't mean that to be a controversial point, but, you know, you get to meet a lot of these folks and there's not a ton of them you say, yeah, that's that's as good a guy in person as you could ever imagine. Right. There's not a ton. Turns out they're delights when you find them. And it seems like he was one of those just a good person, good people, as they used to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely true. I've gotten to meet a lot of people I, I admire professionally who, in real life, uh, it, you know, it hasn't been a wonderful experience. No, you walk and, away uh, saying, well, I'm glad I know them professionally. Yeah, right? Yeah, right exactly. Right, right, right. And, and maybe they're just having a bad moment. Or yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. maybe, maybe they don't know you, right? And mm-hmm. they don't open up, whatever it is. But there are certain people like PJ was great, and I, I wish I had gotten to know him better. Um, but others as well that I got to meet, and I, you know, like Christopher Hitchens, I, I can't, wouldn't say he's a hero of mine, but I respected. Uh, he was he was really a, a fun person to be around, and, and, and uh, others, you know, like that. And, and another part of this is that I, w- I used to be on an editorial board, so I got to meet a lot of people. Sure. And sometimes the people you least expect to, that you'd like and are funny, yeah. or, you know, to be funny are like. I'm just going to throw this out. Like I met, got to meet George Pataki one time, former mayor, governor of New York, and. He's just incredibly funny and nice. And, and I you wouldn't have known expect, that. Yeah. I didn't expect yeah. that. Exactly. Hey, funny you mentioned Christopher Hitchens. He's a little bit compared and contrasted with him. I don't think they liked each other that much um, based on an interview I saw of Christopher Hitchens saying something about P.J. O'Rourke back when he was alive. But that's exactly where my mind went when you said writers for our generation, you and I being in our 50s. Uh, that's who I looked up to. So if you were a PJ guy, I was, I guess, a Christopher guy. Um, but I love PJ, and you probably love Christopher's work as well. Uh, and stipulating that we don't agree with everything these guys write all the time, um, it's interesting, um, though, to compare and contrast their styles because I think we, in losing both of them, have, in fact, to use your words, lost our best writers, lost the best writers that people in their 50s and 60s would have looked up to uh, in losing those two. They, they, they saw something and could put it down in words better than almost anyone else, the two of them. They, they were in a class under themselves, I think. Well, yeah, and, and for other reasons as well. I think both were, um, I hate to use the word, but I'd say brave in a, in a sense. Yeah. They were willing to write things that would upset their own side quite often. Yeah. Um, dismayed by their earlier movements, too. Could you say that about mm-hmm. both of them that were dismayed and let down by their previous affiliated movements? <laughs> exactly. I think that's right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I think they come from a bit of a different tradition because of where, you know, I think Hitchens is more, even though I, I, I call him more of an intellectual, even mm-hmm. though I think that P.J. was a far more intellectual than people might give him yes, credit agreed. for. Yes, agreed. 
But I think that PJ was just more entertaining. So someone yeah. who didn't care about politics right. would read him and really just get a great laugh. Right. Where I'm not sure that's true of, of Hitchens. You that's know, a fair point. Ways, yeah, no, that's yeah, a good insight. I, you had to be a dork to like Hitchens. You didn't have to be a dork to like O'Rourke. Right, but, but I think you're right in saying that they were two of the writers that mattered perhaps the most, you know, a lot of people in our age group. And, you know, Hitchens, Hitchens his position on, on Iraq and everything else, whatever you agree with it or not, it was, was brave. It's hard to go against your tribe, right? And he did that, and I think PJ did that quite often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right, too. And maybe it's a nice segue if you have time for the rest of this segment, and maybe one more if you do have time. I'd love to talk about your book, Eurotrash, uh, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. Do you have a little time for that? Sure, sure, I'd love to. Uh, you see what I did there, didn't you? Do you yeah, have time? I, I want to talk you're to you about your book. Yeah, <laughs> 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 okay. That's well, you're but, setting me up with a softball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so the book is Euro Trash: Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. But yeah, that is it's it's a serious, tra- nice, nice segue because your first mm-hmm. epigraph is from P.G. O'Rourke after the events of the 20th century. God quite reasonably left Europe. What made you want to write about Europe? Well, I guess I have two reasons. One is, and this is not, not exactly new, that there's been a huge uptick in it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of people who, who argue that we should be looking to Europe for our you know, solutions to our problems. That's the first thing. And second thing is, and we've talked about this before, my own history and my own parents and many of Many people have this story, you know, came from Europe and escaped Europe for, yeah. for very good reason. Mm-hmm. So I think... Um, those are the two things that really propelled me to write the book. It's interesting about my minority families, ethnic, religious, racial, whatever, who whose whose you know families came to this country. Very few of them do seem to want to go back. Uh, and 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 I did not know this. I guess I hadn't thought about it. It makes sense. You opened that chapter by saying about three times as many Europeans leave their homelands and immigrate to the United States every year as the other way around. I didn't realize it was that large, but it is important, I think, as a point. Maybe we can pick up on this on the other side of this break, David. It is important for all this, and you saw this particularly strongly during the Bush and Trump administrations for obvious reasons, I suppose – but you saw a lot of comparisons to it. Well, they don't do it that way in Europe. They don't think that way in Europe. Europe has a more sophisticated way of looking at these things. Funny, for all that praise of the European way of doing things, whether it's the lifestyle, the, you know, the cultural aspects, the, poly, the, uh, the, the familial aspects and arrangements, for all of that, the movement is from Europe to here, not from here to Europe. Might we talk a little bit about that when we come back? Sure, absolutely. David Harsani is our guest, senior uh, writer, senior uh, 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 for National Review, and the author of this brand-new book, Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. I'm all in. David will tell us why when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, uh, brought to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Our guest is David Harsani, a a senior writer over at National Review. His new book is Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas 
of a dying continent. Europeanization, David, we're told that uh, by the cultural elites uh, that, well, that's not how Europe does it. By, uh, by, by, by some kind of sophisticated standard, we never seem to be as good as Europe, uh, as your book uh, demonstrates and as you write specifically in Chapter 1. That's just a lot of nonsense. Talk to us about that. Well, what I tried to do in the book was um, look at the things that elites here tell us Europe does better and see if they actually do it better. And, you know, I came up with very few things that they actually did better. I mean, you know, uh, I think what they do and what the Paul Krugmans and other technocrats really like is they have top-down control over, over economic you know, decisions and things of that nature. The elites here, like Europe, do not like the messiness of American life. They do not like the dynamism of the capitalistic society we've built here, the lack of regulation and so on. So for them, that is really what they like about Europe. And the hierarchy of, the you know, of, of important things they, or the hierarchy of values they have, control is near the top. It's simply un- an un-American way to look at the world. So, So I went through all these issues, and it's not just about policy, it's also about um, culture. We, you know, and, and this is slightly idealized, but we're, we're, we're self-selected risk-takers. Those are the people who come here, they take a risk, and they realize that they, there is a risk involved in life and that they can take chances and, and do the things that they want. They value that. And in Europe, they don't. So it just doesn't work here, even if we wanted to bring those policies over. David, uh, on the culture front, uh, God, churches, and synagogues in Europe, um, they're not doing great here. Are they doing worse there? Yeah, I think much worse there, but I have to say, late, you know, since I wrote the book, I've seen uh, data that says we're probably on a very similar trajectory yeah. that probably won't be as bad. I mean, there are countries in Europe where essentially religion is dead, the Czech Republic, for instance, or even some, you know, Western Nations and in the Western nations, the most religious people are are, are probably uh, Muslim immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, not not the church, the traditional churches of those countries. Um, and I should say, you know, I mean, obviously Christianity is a huge part of European culture. Yeah, yeah. it's also a huge part of the reason that we in this country uh, believe in 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 the freedoms that we do or used to. Um, I note this in the book, I think I, I should have expanded on it even more, that, you know, when you're religious, you believe in things that are bigger than yourself, self, and that's how we think of the Constitution. The right to free speech is not something government gives us, it's something bigger than that. But yeah. in Europe, they view these things as state-given, as gifts from the state, and that's why they don't treat it with the same respect that we generally do here, or at least in school. Uh, that's interesting. So what if I hear you right, what we might think of as a natural right, if you will— they think truly as a government privilege. Yeah, I mean, that's how they, they treat things. I mean, uh, you see it in Canada you know, a little Justice, bit right now, maybe. Exactly right. I was thinking the same thing. So Justice Scalia said, you know, everyone has a constitution. They just don't abide by it or treat it with the same kind of respect we do. Uh, and it's true. If you look at the Soviet constitution of the, you know, the 20th century, they have the right to free speech. Yeah. They have all the rights we have in yeah. those constitutions, but they're not obviously taken seriously. And uh, we do, and I think a lot of that has to do with our religion, you know, with our religious population, but also our history. But but those things are quite important, and in Europe they simply don't have the same 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 kind of things. They jump from you know monarchies to fascism to socialism. I was looking for something to fill that void, but it never does. And they lurch pretty quickly too. That's kind of an interesting point you're making when you think about it. They can go not through just you know, successive 
governments of different parties quite quickly. They can go through whole ideologies quite quickly, too, can't they? <laughs> Violently and quickly, yeah. right? I mean, as far as historical, historical perspective. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, you know, now they're, they have this massive bureaucratic state that they talk about uh, in almost near religious terms, or we think about how the British talk about the, their health system, near like, like it's uh, almost a religious right. kind of fervor about it. So I think, at least, you know, I mean, obviously it's more complicated, but broadly speaking, I think that they're looking to fill the void left by by the abandonment of faith. And, um, you know, I mean, and they have just simply a different history than we do when it comes to the relationship between the citizen and government. It's a fascinating point that you put it that way in the context of, you know, what they think of uh, with religious faith is everything but religion. Uh, so religion or the, you know, and the church in Europe is a fading thing, but other things have become to them like it's from the church or from a pope or from a, a religious um, a religious uh, theocratic uh, truth, if you will. Almost the same sense you get when you listen to the left about things here in America. It's almost as if you're listening to someone evangelizing from a church, almost. Absolutely. Not almost. I think, I mean, I think you're there. I mean, okay. It comes to environmentalism. I mean, from my perspective, I'm you know, I'm an atheist, but I am absolutely horrified by the things people that believe in to replace God. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we're there. I mean, the way that people treat the state and religion, progressives talk about it. I'm not saying they're fascists or, you know, like Nazi-style fascists or anything. I'm just saying that they view it as, the you know, the, where, where all morality springs from the state. I mean, you can't talk about anything, that, you know, any kind of societal problem where you don't hear progressive talk about how the state's going to fix it. It's just not how American life has been. Or how know? urgent I mean, and important it is that you get on board and how quickly they will right. silence you if you are not. I mean, this idea of give and take and debate is quickly ending in, like, you know, yeah. quickly ending in America, at least from one side of the aisle, that used to want to engage in debate. Don't want I to. I mean, think anymore. about how, yeah. Oh, I agree. I mean, think about how little we actually debate anything anymore. It's yeah. mostly about, uh, are you racist? Are you this? It's grievance mongering. It's smearing. It's, you know, it's process stuff, you know, that they want to eliminate. And, and, and there's very little actual debate over policy anymore. I mean, even if thinking back to the 2000s, you know, there was, or even Obamacare, there was a ton of sort of wonky policy debate going on. And I'd never see that anymore, frankly. No. You know, so uh, um, we're not really debating anything. We're just debating whether who, who's evil and who's not evil. Yeah, that's you know, right. And it happened it. pretty quickly. You're right. There was a lot of policy debate about how to fix health care circa 2010, 11, 12, 13. There was that. And now there isn't. It's just, are you for health care or are you against it? Are you for killing people or are you for not? And 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 that's that's a, that's kind of a new and strange. I mean, it, I said church. I, I you know they're acting like a church. The left and maybe parts of Europe. I, I really want to say more. It's more like a cult. <laughs> well, politics has become cultish. Yeah, yeah. I mean. And, and no one's really trying to convince anyone anymore. That's right. So, you know, in the old days, you wanted to bring a few senators along. There was really no giant 
you know, reform effort that's ever gone through in, in that wasn't a bipartisan effort. That's right. Sense. Maybe that's right. maybe Obamacare was the first one. I think that really changed. And that the started it. Yep. That's exact. That's how I count it too, David. That's how. Well, listen. You are very good to come and join uh, join us uh, uh, on on the quick here. When I saw PGO work past in your immediate post, I knew I wanted to get you on. And it was an extra delight to be able to talk to you about your new book. Let me mention the name one more time. Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. David Harsanyi, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You betcha. We'll talk again very soon. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Let me put in a a word for our friends at Midas Gold Group. Gold has been used as money for nearly 3,000 years. Today, it remains a common-sense investment that's simple and straightforward. What you don't need is a pushy commission salesperson to tell you why you should buy gold. You probably already want it. All you need is a reputable dealer with advice based on experience and a complete range of bullion and coins. So you get what you want at the best value. In comes Midas Gold Group. They're veteran-owned and proud supporters of America First and our show right here on 960 The Patriot. They're fighting for your right to the financial privacy and freedom that gold offers. Trust the dealer that I, Seb Gorka, and thousands of our listeners know, Midas Gold Group. Visit them in person at 625 West Deer Valley Road in Phoenix or give them a call at 480-360-3000. Or visit them online, the easiest thing to remember, MidasGoldGroup.com. MidasGoldGroup.com. There's our friend Doug doing just as requested, calling us right back. Doug, welcome back. Set up your uh, question earlier. You had just a couple moments to do it unfairly on our end, and I wanted you to get the uh, full um, full uh, time that you wanted here. So go right ahead. I did, I did the mute thing to you yeah, did the mute I, I this time. I didn't want you to hear yeah, my Yeah, I get it. So I'm you're just proving to me you know how a mute button works. I get it. Or yeah, that yeah, it exists. Yeah. Sometimes I have to scramble, but I get it done. <laughs> okay. So. Hey, so I, I, I think the argument or the discussion of our time is not the philosophical principles that are underpinning our side. I think most of us agree with 80 90% of each other, varying smallly on a few things. You mean but in the conservative the movement of, or between conservative? Yes, okay. of the conservative okay. Okay. movement. Good. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, I yeah. think I think the big debate is, is is totally strategy, and in here, people I go to church with, here I people I call friends, uh, we is a huge divide, and it's massive, and I think it's we should talk about it more because it is it is the subject of our time. We will win or lose this country based on this argument and this argument alone. And that's why I brought up the fact that if you looked at how we fought the, the nuclear our, our war between the Cold War between Russia and the United States, for 40 years, or for 30, 35 years, 30, 35 years, um, it was fought a particular way, mutual dis, uh, self-destruction. Right, mutually. And right. Uh, mm-hmm. more, more and more uh, nuclear warheads, finer-tuned, all the pointy heads educated, the very wealthy, highbrow people talking a certain way, all those guys had this idea of how we were going to secure ourselves against the evil Soviet Union. 
In comes a pointy-headed guy from California called Ronald Reagan, who wrote about this uh, for a number of years before he ran and became president, but no one bothered to read his writings. He wrote about every subject you can think about, so you can tell exactly how the man thought. He thought deeply, but everybody, of course, the, the establishment and the Ph.D. type say immediately, rather than handle and argue a subject, they will insult you by saying you're uneducated oof. You know, yeah, because that I think way they amiable dunce to... was the phrase most often used to oh, describe him. Or a wild cowboy who's yeah. going to kill us wild all. Wild cowboy, you know? Rambo, amiable dunce. That's right. That's it. Because that way they don't actually have to think. They mm-hmm. can hold to their arrogance. Now, mm-hmm. I bring that up because two or three times this week I heard many uh, good people talk about, well, if we could just get in smoke-filled rooms, and compromise. I about popped a cork. Yeah, okay? right. Compromise by these good men, who I would call dear friend, maybe bishops in my church, um, are the very reason we've lost every institution. Yep. Because their strategy is what we've done for 45 years. And if their strategy works so well, then they can point to institutions and political successes and they could show us how the, 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 the bureaucracy receded and rules receded and the takeover of our institutions, the takeover of our government, and how bureaucracies go from 2,000 to 75,000 employees. How did that happen? Because we compromised our way up to $30 trillion. But here this guy, um, Reagan, came in and he said, that's, we're, we're dealing military to military. That's their strongest strength. Let me say something so, about that. Yeah, let, let, me, let me address that point when we come back. I'll let you uh, rejoin if you want uh, to what I have to say because you're, you're onto something important here. And let me just plant this seed on that. Compromise with the party that every honest social scientist will tell you has moved steadily more leftward. Think about that. Think about what they're asking us to compromise with. Okay. Think on that, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you in part by the good folks at Balance of Nature. They are good folks because they think of us as good folks, and that's why they sponsor shows like ours and advertise on shows like ours. Whole food nutrition in vegetarian capsules. The fruits and veggies are made from fresh, whole produce through their advanced cold vacuum process. The vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients of the fruits and veggies are preserved so that you get that vital nutrition in each Capsule. Balance of Nature is the only whole food supplement with no additives, fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or added sugar. The only thing in their capsules is pure fruits and veggies. I take it every single day and then some. Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Doug, you still there, buddy? I'm here. You were talking about the continued quest for uh, compromise uh, from people who have uh, the Republican Party's uh, best uh, best intentions at heart. In quotes, I say that. If you could see me, I did the scare quotes or air quotes there. It's always interesting, um, the people who advise us to be so compromising and to moderate. I, I don't know what that means, to moderate. I, I can talk about compromise. To me... Moderate is respect for life. 
to me, moderate is allowing an individual to keep as much of his hard-earned money that he or she can. To me, moderate is having a government that does essential things that we cannot do for ourselves. For me, moderate is all of that. I don't know what more moderate we can do except to become Democrats. And I often wonder if that's exactly what they want us to become. You look at the other side. Is anyone telling them to be moderate? Is anyone telling them? Is Chuck Schumer moderate when he screams the way he does? And I don't see him give a speech that isn't a scream. But when he when you know, when he screams, we're coming for you, Gorsuch, we're coming for you, Kavanaugh, you will inherit the war. Is he moderate? Uh, Is Nancy Pelosi uh, moderate and compromising? Do you get that from Nancy Pelosi or is she hardened and heels dug in um, in in every sense of that word? Is the leadership Elizabeth Warren? Is this someone who sounds to you like she's looking to do compromise with Republicans? Who are the other leaders of the of the Democratic Party we can think of off the top of our heads? Are they people who seek to work uh, and seek to reach across the aisle and find good cause with the Republicans on things having to do with our most important issues, whether it's defense of the military as a military, not as a social experiment institution, as someone who wants to reach across the aisle to reduce taxes, as someone who wants to reach across the aisle to reduce budget deficits, as someone who wants to reach across the aisle to help preserve innocent human life, as someone who wants to reach across the aisle, are any of them someone's who want to reach across the aisle to help us open up our economy and to not punish school children uh, for a disease that won't affect them and will hardly affect most people who get it, who are older than children? Do you get that sense from any of them? No, of course you don't. What you get from them is a desire to run the table. Run the table. And I don't blame them for it. That's what partisanship should be. That's what political parties should be about. And so should two R's be. That's what made Barry Goldwater so distinctive and so revolutionary in the Republican Party. Phyllis Schlafly's book about him was called A Choice, not an echo. We are not here to be an echo chamber of the Democratic Party, which is what the Republican Party thought of itself as until 1964. People that would just run the government a little bit better. When Reagan, in his inaugural speech in uh, January of 81, said government isn't the answer to our problems, government is the problem, uh, people may think that this is a throwaway line. It's not. Go back and do the reading. The editorial columnists went nuts over that. It kind of sounds a little innocent today, but they went nuts over that. They went nuts over Ronald Reagan going after government programs. Ronald Reagan, you know, going after the government and saying it's the problem, not the solution. Individual empowerment to the left is the problem. How do you compromise with that? Why can't we be as hardened in our opinions as those who are the um, the, the Valhalla of the Republican Party? Your Ronald Reagans, your Barry, why your Barry Goldos? Why can't we be the bold pastels and in so doing, do what Ronald Reagan did, as you say, before he became president? which was writing article after article and doing radio broadcast after radio broadcast, persuading people that there is another way of looking at things. There is another way of doing things. Do remember that Ronald Reagan's first full effort to run for the presidency was against a fellow Republican. It was against Jerry Ford, and he came darn near close of getting there because he didn't think that Ford's idea of the Republican Party 
was an idea for the Republican Party. The joke was we want a Lincoln, not a Ford. And uh, yes, so I do believe that if you can't stake out your principles, you're not going to get people – you're not going to lead people to ever buy into them or ever agree to them or ever be open to them. Winston Churchill put it this way. When you have your ear to the ground, it's awfully hard for people to look up to you. What do you say, Doug? Bravo. Um, I think that is my new cause. It is not talking about conservatism to my friends and my Christian uh, fellow buddies. It is that are you willing to fight for it? Because the reason I brought up Reagan is because all the intellectual pointy heads, and including, you know, and I I don't mean to be crude, but when we listen to all these experts, um, that come on. I agree with uh, the vast majority of them, and um, and I think they have a pretty good uh, astute look at things. And uh, however, there's occasionally when I hear the word compromise, we need to get nice. I've heard that twice this last yep. week. Once when we were gone, when yep. you were gone, uh, good nice smoke filled rooms, and then okay, so uh, you know I I go nuts because that is our enemy. Ronald Reagan came in, and you want to hear people go nuts. He said, it's stupid to go up against military to military. We break them financially. So one of the first things he did in January 1981, he deregulated gas production. Right. And all the liberals went nuts. Okay, I'm saying this because he was not a pointy-head Ph.D. He did not talk sweetly. Well, he did talk pretty classy. But he did not talk soft and sweetly. If you listen to his stump speeches, they were right in your throat. And he made fun of the liberals, calling them Paco strikers. They'll be fired. That oh, that yeah. that's not well, sweet talk. No, and he went right in there and did the opposite of all the rich, highly educated, pointy heads that for forty years said go warhead the warhead. He said deregulate gasoline. Gasoline was ninety percent of the liquid cast of the Soviet Union. And immediately the gas prices rose because, and all the caps came off of the wells in the United States and all the liberals went nuts, you're going to hurt people. Well, of course, you dumb knobs, because you're deregulating. But now there's overproduction, and in three months gas was cheaper than it had been in 10 years. Yep. But the whole point is, when he drove the price down, he starved the Soviet Union of cash for their military. Now, it's all the pointy heads that all our establishment types want to moderate with. They didn't come up with that. Nope. And when, when uh, Trump got in there, we had moderated. And you ever notice with these well-intentioned Republicans and conservatives, they always seem to negotiate. When they compromise, it always seems to compromise the bigger spending. It compromises the bigger bureaucracy. Yep. It always compromises. It never comes our way. It never is in our direction. And that's the lesson we should draw. There's a principle of compromise, just not on principle. I thought, hold on. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There's our friend Tina in Star Valley. Hi, Tina. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I am. I am actually really good. We're looking for snow up here. So it's exciting. Um, let me know. Yeah, let me let me know how that goes. But let us not reduce <laughs> yeah. our friendship to talking about the weather. Let's not. Okay. Um, I have to tell you, when I heard the 
very sad news of PJ O'Rourke's passing, I I truly teared up. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Oh man, he there's was, not a lot of writers you of would do favorites. that about. That's something interesting. About. Hugh Hallman's a big. Uh, he's coming in. He's he's a big PGO Rourke guy. He got me interested in PGO Rourke. He'll have some words to say about it. But you point out something kind of interesting. There's not a lot of contemporary writers who would pass away that give you that feeling, and he's his passing gives you that feeling. It was, and you know, I to describe him, he was funny. He was incisive. He was. He was the original snark, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not. I mean, Hitchens, I, I was really sad when Hitchens passed, because I followed both of them yeah. forever. And, they uh, were of and, a kind he, of sorts. Yeah, they uh, were of a kind yeah. of sorts. And not, yeah. not that close. I mean, they knew each other, but they didn't like right. each other. Which is interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Right? It is. But, um, they were different kinds. They were the, different the, kinds of conservatives. They were different kinds. Yes. Yeah. You know? One of the best experiences of my life, you know, with P.J. O'Rourke was a, a, a writer that if you read him out loud, you really got the full effect. Right. And right. my husband and I were on a long-distance drive to New Mexico, and I remember reading Parliament of Horrors mm-hmm. out loud to him and laughing so hard. I, there were times where I could not read. It yeah. Was so wonderful. Yeah. That's a real humorist. So, uh, That's a real writer. And of course, great truths, yeah. great truths can be found in humor. In fact, humor doesn't work without truth underlying it in some places. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Exactly. So anybody who's listening, go get some of his writings, but particularly Parliament of Force. That seems that to be the one best. most people say is his best work. Yeah. Yeah. And it, he just nailed the, the nature the very essence nature of government. Yeah. And, and and there's a there's a part of you that's laughing uncontrollably and a part of you that's going, Oh my gosh, yeah. this can never be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's so far gone, but he pointed that out when we hadn't uh, when we hadn't ourselves realized it. And I suppose that is one of the differences between he and Hitchens. Hitchens didn't make you laugh. He made you cheer, but he no. didn't make you laugh. Um, and well, I suppose, too, Hitchens it would be unfair is, to call Hitchens a conservative. It would not be unfair to right, call P.G. Yeah. O'Rourke a conservative. Yeah, yeah. But Hitchens was he, – he was not a happy person. No. And I, and I think that P.G. O'Rourke was a happier person. I, really I, I that so. You get I mean, that sense. You get that. I knew Hitchens fairly well. And he was oh, a good wow. person. He was you, – you yeah. couldn't find a more decent guy who was happy to mentor young writers, help out, all that. But you're right. He wasn't a happy person, which is OK. Some people are born to the moon. Some people are born to the sun. I'm told I'm born to the moon. Hugh Hallman's born to the sun. You know, He's a happy, <laughs> jolly guy and I'm not. I'd yeah. like to think we're both good people. You're a great person, Tina. You do it all. Thank you for that. Thank you, dear. Thank you. You betcha. <laughs> Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman coming right up. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.